Hello and welcome to episode 1265 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, who has made a major mistake yet again, did not learn his lesson from his very untrafficked Kyle Freeland post last week. You've written about the Rockies again. Didn't you realize that you can only expect one result when you write about the Rockies? I think at this point I'm just trying to force it. Now, I would like to say for the record, I don't care about traffic as long as I have a job. It means yeah. nothing to me. It's uh, yeah. Some of the things that I like to write about don't really draw much attention, which is fine because some of the stuff that does draw a lot of attention is just unpleasant and, and boring to write about. But it just mm-hmm. it never ceases to amuse me that the Rockies just never draw an audience. Just never. Yeah. I, I, I can't even think. Of the last, I, I maybe I'm just missing something that's very obvious, but I can't think of the last thing that anyone at Fangraphs <laughs> wrote about the Rockies that drew a worthwhile audience at all. This mm-hmm. isn't just a Jeff Sullivan problem. <laughs> this is a Rockies problem. Yeah, I assume it's a Ben Lindbergh problem. I don't even know what my traffic is. Generally, I I come from the Will Leach school of if they don't tell me the traffic is a problem, I don't even ask, and I can't see it without asking, and that's fine with me. So I don't know how my Kyle Freeland post from last week did, but I'm going to assume it it did do great. You kind of you get a sense just based on feedback to the article on Twitter or email or whatever, and there wasn't much, so I think it was probably the same. But uh, you wrote about Trevor Story, who, according to your headline, is making an all-time improvement. Yep, sure is. <laughs> I'd tell you why, but no one wants to hear about it, turns out. <laughs> well, <laughs> your subtitle says that he's turned into one of the top shortstops in either league, and I know that he was not one of the top shortstops in either league last year, so I'm guessing that has something to do with the improvement? Yeah, huh. he, uh, you, you might remember it. Trevor Story... He came around, and he was like a big launch angle guy. I don't know if he used the words launch angle, but, you know, he had everything in the air. He was sort of like a lighter-hitting Joey Gallo in a way. He just struck out a bunch and hit everything in the air, and he was a shortstop. Well, he still is a shortstop. He still hits everything in the air, but he's he stopped striking out a lot. His strikeout rate has decreased just about 9 percentage points, which it turns out is like the eighth biggest year-to-year decrease in baseball history for anyone Mm. who's like a— basically a qualified player in consecutive seasons. Uh, I looked Mm -hmm. at more than 7,000 season pairs of players who batted at least 500 times in both years, and only seven cases have had a bigger strikeout rate decrease than stories right now. He's he's there. He's a little ahead of rookie to sophomore year Chris Bryant, and I don't know, rookie to sophomore or sophomore to junior year Xander Bogarts in terms of what he's done. Bryant has Mm -hmm. not gone back to striking out. Bogarts has not gone back to striking out. So Trevor Story, quietly, very quietly, because he plays for the Rockies, has made some sort of change. There's a partial mechanical explanation that I looked at the video. I couldn't really find anything, but I don't know. I'm not really so good at that stuff. I can only spot the obvious things. So Story has done something with this swing, yada, 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 not striking out so much Rockies first place. I wonder if there are any Rockies fans listening who were considering clicking on your post and are now not going to because we just spoiled it, which will make your traffic look even worse. But that's how it goes. I should be fired for two reasons. One, continuing to write about the Rockies, and two, missing two work days of a four-day work week to visit family. (laughs) So I'm really just not chipping in this week at all. I feel bad. (laughs) 
So yeah, we just had a long weekend. Hopefully it was fairly restful for both of us. And it feels like everything that happened over that long weekend was already a long time ago. And I don't know what we should and shouldn't talk about. Like Josh Donaldson got traded about five minutes after I posted our last episode. (laughs) So that was a while ago. Not that he has played in the major since, although he did hit a grand slam in AAA. So that's nice. And he'll be back soon. But Shohei Otani pitched. Williams Estadio won the Rochester AAA MVP award. So congratulations to him. Is there anything you wanted to dwell on from this past weekend? Well, I was uh, I took advantage of maybe the last good outdoors long weekend of the year to go away and and disappear and wake up in a tent covered with frost. So I was trying to catch up yesterday with all the depth chart stuff and what was happening in baseball. I understand there was a whole weird Brady Feigl thing that <laughs> caught fire on the internet. I don't know yeah. who's going to follow up on that. I understand I think, yeah. Joe West Levi. did. Levi's on it. Levi's on it. All right. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's, he'll figure it out, whatever's <laughs> yep. going on, because it does look like there's a tear somewhere in the, uh, in the fabric. <laughs> yeah. I'll link to that tweet, but if no one has seen it, there is a Brady Feigl in the A's minor league system, and there's also a Brady Feigl in the Rangers minor league system. One of them, I think, is five years older than the other. One of them is a lefty. One of them is a righty. But at least in the headshots that Levi Weaver, who writes for The Athletic and covers the Rangers, in the headshots that he tweeted along with this discovery, they look like the same person. And it's really freaky and scary. And as I understand it, he has already talked to one of the Brady's Feigl and will soon be talking to the other. So I look forward to what he finds out. I also understand there was something about Joe West and a player, Austin Davis. Mm. Is that right? Yep. With some sort of foreign substance analytical card. So that is right. These are, these are the controversies that I feel bad for missing. But then after the fact, I really don't feel bad for missing them. I just feel bad because it means that this part of the podcast is worse because I don't have <laughs> anything to chip in. But I can at least bring it up. I'll be the straight man. And here's Ben yeah. Lindbergh with the punchline. <laughs> Well, as it happens, I actually spoke to Austin Davis about his card a few days before this incident happened because I was interviewing him for the book, the book that I'm working on with Travis Sachik is partially about how players have embraced information themselves in an effort to improve their performance. And so Austin Davis, as far as I know, is a trailblazer. I think Zach Greinke has since done the same thing, but Austin Davis got there first. He, I think, as far as I know, was the first to have an information card on his person on the mound. As we've seen outfielders do for positioning, as we've seen catchers do, they have wristbands with various information on there. But Austin Davis brought a card out with the scouting reports on hitters. He's been doing this for a while now, since July. And he just consults it between batters, sometimes even between pitches, just reminds himself what he wants to do. And it's just your basic, you know, he said information is helpful and why shouldn't I do this? And Gabe Kapler approved of his doing it. And the front office people and the people who communicate with the front office people find they put a lot of work into disseminating this information to the players. And so Davis wants to take advantage of that. And uh, maybe he will cause a trend that will spread. But yes, Joe West did not take kindly to the card. He confiscated the card in the middle of a game because he said it constituted a foreign substance, which is a really broad definition of substance. I guess it was a substance. It was a card. (laughs) But 
I don't think it violated the spirit of the rule, and MLB has since said that Joe West was wrong to deprive Austin Davis of this card, so presumably this will not happen again, but it's kind of a a fun old-school versus new-school moment. It doesn't really get much older school than Joe West, and it doesn't really get much newer school than rookie Austin Davis bringing information out to the mound with him, so kind of a clash of eras here, and Davis will win. I mean, it's it, what it's very vaguely reminiscent of the idea of what uh, outfielders couldn't put things in the grass to mark where they're supposed to yeah. stand or something. Right. But on the other hand, I mean, catchers have this information, some information on their wrists, right? They just mm-hmm. like quarterbacks do in football. So I don't, I don't need to yep. talk about this anymore. You just did. But what is interesting, I didn't know anything about this until just about right now. And you mm-hmm. would think that when you have a player who's consulting a, uh, a little pamphlet, a little piece of paper for information. You'd think it might slow him down a little bit, but for anyone who might be wondering about that, Austin Davis's average pace between pitches this year, 22.1 seconds, which ranks him in the fastest 10% of major league relievers this year with at uh-huh. least 20 innings thrown. So Austin Davis not slowing down even while studying for his homework. Yeah, that is interesting because one thing I talked to him about, I guess you can all skip the Austin Davis page of the book when it comes out <laughs> or or reread it. Maybe you'll have forgotten all this by then. But one thing that we talked about was the idea of information overload and players will sometimes say they don't want too much information in their heads when they're in a game because it'll screw them up and This sounds like that, kind of, like he's actually looking at information during the game, but really it's sort of the opposite of that in that he no longer has to actually remember anything because he knows he has it in his back pocket. So if he forgets something, he doesn't have to stress about it. He doesn't have to memorize it. He knows he can just pull this card out anytime and... Maybe that applies to his pace as well. I don't know. Maybe he's just a a fast-paced pitcher, but maybe it's that he doesn't have to stand out there and think about what he wants to do because he has this card that tells him and reminds him what he wants to do, and then he has the courage of his convictions. That's right. So Mm -hmm. was there—let's see, what else? I know before the AAA season ended— uh, Mike Curdo, Tacoma Rainiers, announcer tweeted out that Carter Caps, he's uh, he's still around in case you'd forgotten <laughs> what Carter Caps is up to. On uh-huh. August 18th, he even struck out five batters. But in any case, Carter Caps this season, I don't really, let me just, let's check in on his numbers here. So in 38 innings, he's got an ERA of three something. He's got roughly a strikeout per nine. It, he doesn't look very remarkable. So Carter Caps, yeah. long road. generic back now. From, yeah, generic, but still throwing like Carter Caps such that. He was called for a pitch violation. He was called for a violation, I believe it was last Friday, because, you know, he's throwing like Carter Caps. And what was what's weird is not just that he was called for a violation, but that he came back to pitch, I believe, the next day with the same umpiring crew. Didn't change anything. Nothing illegal. No pitches called box or balls. So Carter Caps illegal, but then decided to be legal. I don't know. I don't know who's paying attention at that point, but Carter Caps still around, still causing very minor controversies that flare up briefly on Twitter. Yeah, it would be sort of sad if he's still doing the leap and a bound on the mound and it doesn't actually help him or it's the only thing that helps him be even playable. Like it used to make him superhuman and debatably unfair. And now I guess he still does it to the extent that he's allowed to do it, but he's just a generic guy. So that's sort of sad. 
And I guess moving on from there, the Mariners had a fight, it looks like. Something <laughs> happened. Yeah. You messaged me and I saw on Twitter before we started podcasting here on Tuesday that there was some sort of altercation in the Mariners clubhouse. And I don't, I can't tell if D. Gordon just like sensed a premonition or something or if he knew yeah. that this was developing. But D. Gordon ushered the media out of the clubhouse and then there was some sort of altercation. This is sort of uh, as news is breaking, if you will. So we don't, at least I don't have any further details. I haven't been looking at Twitter. These kinds of things happen. I mean, that's been what seven and a half months basically that these people have been together six and a half months Mm -hmm. just on a regular basis so yeah ryan divish who covers the mariners said this sort of thing happens every season it's just unusual for it to happen within view or earshot of reporters which this one partially did so that's why we know about it but it's not necessarily that unusual right and i think more than just the fact that there was some sort of conflict again these are all type A personalities, so they're going to conflict sometimes. But my favorite part about this is that because the minor league season is over, the Mariners Class A affiliate Everett Aquasox were in the clubhouse pregame <laughs> hanging out with the team, getting some real influence from their professional role models at the uh, at the highest level of the game. Yeah, so welcome the, to the show. That's right. So I wonder, I wonder if it was maybe, uh, it could have been hazing. Maybe the Mariners just kind of beat up on the Aquasox a little bit, just decided... You know, we're going we're gonna to show you what it's like to be in this clubhouse. Or maybe the Aqua Sox beat up on the Mariners. I don't know. Maybe some of them pick sides <laughs> and they fight each other. Well, maybe we'll find out more details by the end of this podcast. But, I mean, the obvious inference that you can draw from this is team that was winning is no longer winning. And so now tempers are flaring up and things that wouldn't have caused fights in the past maybe now will cause fights. Although I think it's funny that the Mariners, when this fight broke out or whatever it was broke out, were coming off a one-run win. So they, even on Monday, the game before this happened, they were still up to their old tricks. The Mariners, when they were winning every game by one or two runs, were people in the area you would know better than I crediting it to chemistry? Like, was anyone saying this is real or this is happening because this team is just a bunch of fun-loving guys? guys who get along and they're loose and they support each other and they come up with the big hit or was anyone making that kind of argument at the time i don't know if it was like the whole explanation here is chemistry but depoto and and service in particular have talked a lot about how they've been trying to build a culture and having the whole winning environment nothing you haven't heard before but it's been Mm -hmm. a whole a whole part of their act a whole part of their their salesmanship is saying that the you know, of course, the numbers say that the team should be worse than it is. But, you know, when you just have this kind of group of guys together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, everyone's fighting in right. September. But, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was present. It was part of it. But I uh, I will say, at least as long as we're talking briefly about the Mariners, the not only did they win on Monday, good for them. They beat the worst team in baseball. By the way, the Orioles, in case anyone wasn't paying attention, they got swept <laughs> by the Royals. So in the series for the saddest baseball team of 2018, the Orioles <laughs> win out and they win convincingly. But Edwin Diaz was named the reliever of the month for August and I only bring that up because he's been named the reliever of the month four months and there have been five months that this award has been handed out uh, this season in the second half Edwin Diaz has thrown 18.1 innings he's allowed two earned runs he struck out 36 batters he's a uh, he's been incredibly good I don't know if anyone has checked in recently on Edwin Diaz or maybe people have just kind of come to terms with the fact that he's unbelievable but for all the talk about how the Mariners have been overachieving Edwin Diaz has not been a problem he's not been lucky Edwin Diaz right now according to Fangraphs has a war of 3.5 as a relief pitcher 
who's wow. pitched in 66 games. I don't know. I just noticed that, so I haven't looked up any sort of background. But that's incredible. That's Edwin mm-hmm. Diaz has been borderline an ace as a reliever because he's got 115 strikeouts and 66.1 innings. 16 yeah. walks. He's just been incredible. And what's, what's funny to me is his peripherals look almost identical to where they were when he was a rookie. I mean, he's, he's a little better now, but this is something that he's even done before. And he slumped a little bit last season, but... Edwin Diaz has basically just done what he did his first year, and he stretched it over an entire season. So even though the Mariners presumably are not going to make the playoffs, they made up no ground on the A's over the weekend, which was too bad for them. Edwin Diaz mm-hmm. has been absolutely unbelievable, and he looks like he, I don't know, is he the best reliever in baseball? Because he looks like he's the best reliever in baseball. Yeah, maybe. One of them. Very short them. list. Yeah. <laughs> Going out on a limb there. So I guess we should very briefly mentioned Shohei Otani since we set the scene for his return on Sunday against the Astros. You were in the wilderness. I was not quite in the wilderness, but I was away from Wi-Fi, so I was following along via game day, did not actually see the game, and it was pretty disconcerting on the surface because he only made it, I think, to the third inning, and his velocity really sharply tailed off from the first inning where he was throwing his, you know, fairly usual high 90s to third inning where he was throwing low 90s. And really, that's sort of a scary thing to see in the span of a single game or even multiple games. You always worry and wonder what's going on there, particularly with a guy who hasn't pitched in months in games because of his elbow. And I think a lot of people were insta-criticizing the Angels for pitching him and wondering if this was kind of the end of his pitching experiment, at least for this season. It sounds, as we record now, like that's not the case, like this was not elbow-related. He has said it was not elbow-related. He said that his back stiffened up somewhat, maybe as a result of his long layoff. He got hit in the hand by a comebacker, and according to him, according to the Angels, Those were the reasons for his speed decrease within that game, and he is still apparently on track to start again. So Tommy John watch is postponed for another week. It was not encouraging, but it was not quite as catastrophic as it seemed in the moment. Right. Of course, I'm reminded that shortly before Otani went on the disabled list in the first place, the Angels were holding him back for reasons that they did not suggest had anything to do with his elbow. It seems like there's a a little bit of beating around the bush back then, but I am, I don't really buy the uh, the comebacker or the ball off the finger argument here, but I can buy the, the back one. I think the back one is, the, 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 when the back hurts, it's a pressing issue for any sort of movement. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like we've probably talked about this before. I've talked about this with everyone who's ever been at least 30 years old before. As soon as you injure your back, just the minor little tweak, then all of a sudden you can't do anything. So I can understand how why a pitcher might go from throwing 98 to throwing 92. So I buy it. It's credible. I feel like if the Angels actually thought that Shohei Otani were risking himself for if he had actually been injured, then he would not be lined up for another start because that would there would be absolutely no purpose to that. Really no reason for the Angels to be lying here. So I will mm-hmm. take them at their word and I will watch Otani the next time. Yep. All right. Anything else? No, that's enough. <laughs> okay. And that's the end of the episode. Now, we will continue talking, but now in email answer format. So this week's going to be a little weird because it started late and you are going away again. So we're going to do what we can and we'll see what comes out. And right now we are going to start with an email episode 
So I'm going to start with a question from Craig. I don't know whether you've seen this. This has been making the rounds, but I will send you a link as I read this, hopefully. So evidently, the new Amazon series Jack Ryan, based on Tom Clancy character, is a baseball show. There are multiple baseball references in the show. I have not had a chance to check it out yet, but this one scene has been circulating. So this is, I will quote Craig here, Jack and a colleague discussing fantasy baseball pitching decisions. I will play the quick clip now. And I will listen to it now. Actually, I was talking about Eisenberg's fantasy league. Oh. All right, what do we got? Okay, Zach Greinke or Dallas Keuchel? Come on, Greinke's the point lower. But SunTrust Stadium gives up 1.86 more home runs per three-game homestand than Minute Maid. So? Keiko. Thanks. <laughs> you got it. Well, that was boring. <laughs> so Jack Ryan, he's a, what, a CIA analyst. He's supposed to know the numbers. So naturally, he'd be the go-to fantasy baseball guy in the office, I guess. So Craig says, a few questions after watching this clip. Are the stats cited at least somewhat accurate to real life? Maybe the Grinky ERA stat would be tougher without knowing the day, but does SunTrust Park actually let up 1.8 more home runs per homestand than Minute Maid? Seems hard to believe, based on how homer-happy Minute Maid is versus SunTrust. Actually, it isn't, right? Is it homer-happy? I don't know. We talked about Minute Maid and its being a surprising pitching park recently. But that's the first question here. So is it realistic that... Granky's ERA is half a run lower. I don't know whether this is supposed to be 2017 or 2018. I think the first episode says Washington, D.C., present day. But obviously that's not how making TV shows works. But it's uh, obviously plausible that Zach Granky's ERA could be half a run lower than Dallas Keuchel's. I assume that has been the case at some point in the past couple of years. Probably more than half a run lower, right? So... That part seems okay. The other part, SunTrust Park letting up 1.8 more home runs per homestand than Minute Maid. Per homestand? Per homestand. Who even cites that as (laughs) a denominator? (laughs) It's not like homestand is a unit of time that anyone uses. A homestand can be varying (laughs) lengths of time. It's just like no matter how long the homestand is, it lets up 1.8 more home runs. Actually, he says three-game homestand, which would be a very short homestand. He must mean three-game series. He also says SunTrust Stadium, not SunTrust Park. So that's (laughs) a suspect stat that's the kind of stat that we always say like come to us and just have us check the the baseball references on your show because no one says home runs per homestand so that's one thing i mean does how many more home runs does suntrust park actually let up versus minute Maid? all right hold on <laughs> go to those fangraphs park factors Okay, so what we have over the last, I guess, two years, 2017, 2018, Minute Maid Park, there have been 370 home runs hit there by anyone that's combined. And Mm -hmm. that ranks Houston 15th out of 30 ballparks, pretty neutral, even though this does not, of course, account for the ability of the Astros lineup, etc. So the uh, SunTrust Park, actually fourth from the bottom, 297 home runs allowed. So the uh, the ballpark with the fewest home runs, unsurprisingly, it's AT&T Park. 230 home runs in San Francisco since the start of 2017, which is 51 fewer than the next lowest total for any ballpark. So AT&T Park, that might have been a good one to pick on. Maybe cite mm-hmm. Madison Bumgarner here 
instead of one of the uh, instead of Dallas Keuchel or no mm-hmm. instead of Zach Greinke. I don't know. Look, I'm all turned around because this is such a weird. I'm so I'm hung up on homestand. It's throwing me off because I yeah. can't do any sort of baseball reference query for home runs per homestand. Maybe no. SunTrust has just had like really long homestands, but I can at least confirm there have been 73 more home runs hit in Houston than in Atlanta over the past year and five months so for me that's just like close enough i guess Mm -hmm. but if you're saying hold on so the argument hmm the argument was to start keichel well that's the next question from craig maybe he says this is a fantasy baseball decision based on expected start value would you expect a pitcher with an era half a run lower to have a worse expected start than a higher era pitcher because of a homer prone ballpark i'm not sure how you would look this up but it's interesting Wait, did I get myself turned around? He said that Atlanta allows more home runs? Yes, which is... Yeah. So, okay, no. So what I said about it being close enough was... uh, What I meant was the opposite of that. It was bad. (laughs) It was a bad thing to cite. Okay, so so just on that basis alone, okay, bad stat. Then a half run, but then ballpark. I think, no, home run factor doesn't do it for me because if a home run factor is up, that means probably the the doubles factor is down, the triples factor is down, home run factor is only a part of it. So unless you're talking like a game in Coors Field or something, although at least there you get the pitch against the Rockies, then it doesn't uh, it doesn't do it for me. If you mm-hmm. were talking about just home run factor alone, you would still start the guy with the lower ERA. But of course, a real CIA analyst who knows anything about baseball would not be citing ERA in a single <laughs> season as a measure to go on. So I think Jack Ryan, unconvincing portrayal of a, uh, a very <laughs> analytically progressive baseball fan. Yes, very. Craig also asked if we could pinpoint which day this was referring to. And all I can say is that Zach Greinke has only pitched once in SunTrust Park, and it was July 14th of this season. He pitched very well. He went seven and two-thirds. He did not allow a run. He struck out seven. So he would have been a good person to start on that week. Dallas Keuchel did not start that same day, although I guess this could have been a weekly league. So if it was a weekly league, Dallas Keuchel pitched really well that week too. He started the day before and he went six scoreless and struck out four. But I guess the best recommendation was for Zach Greinke and none of the rationale cited actually makes much sense. So Now we have, (laughs) hold on. So we have Dallas Keuchel also, he's pitching a home game in Houston. We don't know who he's facing, but the probability is he's facing a team that's worse than the Astros. But we have Zach mm-hmm. Greinke pitching a road game, which is already a disadvantage, but he's also doing it in Atlanta against a team mm-hmm. that at least now, and presumably in the same reality, is in first place and is the best yeah. team in that division. So Zach Greinke also less likely to get the win than Dallas Keuchel, which is presumably a fantasy baseball relevant statistic, although we they didn't tell us sure. what categories their league is measuring. Maybe it's some <laughs> sort of really weird advanced like yeah. FIP and F4 league, but it's probably not <laughs> since he cited Zach Greinke's ERA being a half run lower than Dallas Keuchel's. But in any case, I think that he he used bad math and words to deliver the incorrect conclusion. <laughs> and then his coworker just smiles and says thanks and goes off to follow suit, which means what is this department doing to say <laughs> we're trusting this I guy know. is making the right decisions to like save the country? <laughs> And he can't even sort out who to start a baseball game? I I hope he's putting more care into monitoring terrorist chatter than he is to sit-start decisions in fantasy baseball. That's all I can say. In what league do you get to start (laughs) one pitcher? What is this decision even down to? I guess maybe she's like streaming 
pitchers? I, I don't know. But maybe it's just a daily fantasy league, except they didn't actually start on the same day in reality. It's confusing. Anyway, none of it is, is smart or makes sense. So <laughs> discount Jack Ryan's fantasy baseball advice. That's wow. the takeaway here. All right. Mark from Montreal says, how seriously should we consider Alex Bregman as American League MVP? While the Astros haven't been ravaged by injuries, they have had to say goodbye to a combined 79 games missed by the likes of Springer, Altuve, and Correa. Bregman leads his team, a fantastic team, in nearly every significant offensive category, and not just those which are attained by virtue of having played in more games than anyone else. If he plays a bit over his head in September, he could theoretically finish the season with a 300, 400, 500 slash line. His team has played in a greater number of high leverage games than the teams of Betts, Ramirez, and Trout. What does Bregman have to do in September to legitimately have a shot at the award? Well, he's uh, he's done a lot already. We know that much. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I think we've talked before that I think there are going to be there's going to be be some stuff here. I think that JD Martinez is going to get support. We've talked had this conversation before. I think JD Martinez yeah. will get a little bit of support for quote unquote rejuvenating the Red Sox lineup. Whatever. Also, he's been great. So JD Martinez will mm-hmm. get credit for from people who don't care about defense. And I think that Matt Chapman is going to get some support from people who look at the A's and think, how did that team and uh, end up where they are? And Matt Chapman is the most visible player provided. And presuming those voters decide not to like nominate Blake Trinan for the award, mm-hmm. even though he does deserve it more. But <laughs> anyway, if you look at war, whether it's baseball reference war or Fangrass war, it's Mookie Betts, who leads the American League, has been the most valuable player. I think if you want to talk about Bregman, he's been the best Astro. Mookie Betts could have his vote split with J.D. Martinez. Uh, Jose Ramirez could have his vote split with Francisco Lindor. Although, do we... I forgot where we've come down at vote splitting. Is it a thing that actually makes sense <laughs> or happens? I've never thought about it too critically yeah i guess i don't know it probably happens a little bit in certain circumstances i would think when two players for the same team have a similar case or something i i could imagine it happening yeah it's it's conceivable but i mean if you if you look at it now even if you don't want to go by war just alone which you could do uh, the best hitter in the american league has been mike trout we can assume he's not going to win because he's been hurt and also the angels and the second best hitter has been Boogie Betts. Second, uh, third best hitter after him has been J.D. Martinez. So I think right now Betts has it probably, uh, mm-hmm. most likely just because he's been the best player uh, based on a few different ways of looking at things. So for Bregman to do it, I know the Astros are are still kind of fending off the A's. It, it's felt forever. Like it's inevitable that the Astros will win the division. But if Bregman has another really great month and if Mookie Betts just trails off a little bit, and I can see how Bregman's final numbers could measure up and, and help push him over the top. Right now, he's got a 158 WRC+, plus, which is outstanding. Mm-hmm. But I would say that he's like, I don't know, fourth place right now, maybe third, if I had to guess how the voting would shake out. Yeah, he's doing a lot of innovation in the dugout celebration space. He's done a lot of clever home run celebrations lately. But yeah, basically the answer is what you would expect. He has to have a really good month while his competitors have to not have really good months. And also <laughs> the Astros have to win a bunch of games. That's it's, that's about it, <laughs> basically. like I don't know what you were expecting, but <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, all right. <laughs> People come to us for insight, and sometimes they're just, it's not that much to be had. It's like got to be said. good. Yeah. <laughs> Other guys got to be less good. 
Okay, so continuing on Her here. Her home stand? 1.8 <laughs> yeah. home, How many home, home runs, runs does Alex Bregman have to hit per homestand in September to, to win the AL MVP? Holy <laughs> hell. Okay, this is not my stat blast, but I just found something I can't help but share with you now. Okay. I was, I was thinking about clutch because MVP and all that stuff. Okay, so I'm looking at high leverage betting. Uh, so Kyle Schwarber this year, <laughs> Kyle Schwarber has batted 55 times in high leverage situations. I'll repeat mm-hmm. that. 55 high leverage plate appearances for Kyle Schwarber. Okay. I want, there are three, <laughs> there are three things in his, what his WRC plus is. There's the, what, direction around zero, and then there are two numbers after it. So, <laughs> let's do this. Does Kyle Schwarber have a positive or negative WRC plus in high leverage situations? I'll say Negative. Good guess. What's the first okay. number? <laughs> uh, <laughs> one? Nope. It can't be more than one? It sure can. <laughs> no. Two? It can be six. Six? And the second number is two. Kyle Schwarber, <laughs> in a high leverage plate appearances this season, has batted 55 times. Now... He's drawn 10 walks, although seven of those were intentional, so no credit to him. He's got 44 at-bats. He has two hits, and they're singles. He has a WRC plus of negative 62, which is the worst (laughs) in high-leverage batting by 44 points. Oof. I had no idea. I got a post for tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, all right. I wonder if that's historic. I guess we'll find out when you post tomorrow. Anyway, sorry, you you were asking something. Uh, yeah, I was about to. I'll also say you have to go really far down the position player war leaderboard before you get to an NL player, yes. at least at Fangraphs. Well, I guess that's not true. Manny Machado is seventh, and he is now an NL player. <laughs> but you have to go all the way to Matt Carpenter at ninth before you get to someone who's been in the NL all season. The top eight guys are all AL guys, or until recently were AL guys, which is weird doesn't really mean anything but it's weird i mean you can look at the same thing in the nl pitching leaderboard i guess probably well no i guess on the baseball reference nl war pitching leaderboard the top four guys will all be it'll be the the degrom and scherzer and nola and freeland before you get to an al guy but not quite true at fangrass anyway war leaderboards are weird at the top at times doesn't mean that much All right, continuing, Mark says, As a Brewers fan, games in Milwaukee against the Cubs are always frustrating for me as Miller Park gets turned into Wrigley North with crowds dominated by Cubs fans. It struck me that the Brewers will play all 19 games against the Cubs this year in front of crowds made up primarily of opposing fans. And given Cubs fan attendance at road games, it's possible that the Cubs may not play that many games all year in front of crowds made up primarily of opposing fans. What I wonder is, does this matter at all? If there were a team that played a normal travel schedule but played every road game in front of a home crowd, say 90% or more of their own fans, would that team finish any better than a team playing in front of normal crowds? Would there be a substantial enough influence on umpiring or morale to affect the team's record over 162 games? What about a team in the opposite situation, one that had to play in front of packed crowds made up of predominantly opposing fans for all of its home games? Huh. Well, uh, so, again, people come to us for insight, and then the answer is, yeah, probably matters a very, very small amount. Uh, (laughs) So all the rest of what we're going to do here is just talk around that point, so you can (laughs) skip forward in this podcast if you want to. I I could try to run a query on this, I guess, to try to figure—I don't know how long, like, Cubs fans in particular have been a menace. 
I don't know how long they've been showing. I mean, there's always been a lot of Cubs fans, but of course there's more now mm-hmm. than there were pre-World Series. Same with the Red Sox well before that. I guess you could look at home road win-loss splits for those teams before and after their championship seasons to see if anything has changed there. But I would think that even if anything did, we would just say, well, it's noise or it's not noise if there's no effect. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the umpiring effect, I could see there being like a something slight there just because the umpires do seem to have a a slight home team favor, right? But Mm -hmm. it goes away somewhat quickly so much for the home field effect seems to be concentrated in the early innings some of it is like when the pitcher takes the mound versus when the other pitcher takes the mound and that's something that you don't get to change even if you have friendly fans in the seat so i would think that what right now home field advantage is something like 53 percent winning percentage versus 47 percent on the road and i would think that if you if you get to play in front of so many of your own fans all the time i could see like a, a very minor effect bumping up your road winning percentage but by like a fraction of a win every few seasons i don't think that it would be mm-hmm. substantial but the, the players would like it yeah the question basically boils down to what is home field advantage or what creates home field advantage and i don't know that we have a definitive answer for that there have been many many studies and books chapters written on that topic over the years and I think my understanding is that the bulk of it does come from umpiring and probably from pitch calling. And so you would think that that would be the thing that would be most influenced by the crowd. So in that sense, yeah, there probably is something to that. But then there's also getting to be at home and sleep in your own bed at night. There's getting to know the ballpark and knowing it better than your opponent and maybe being built for the ballpark in some way and Various other little factors, just less travel and jet lag, maybe lots of little things that could contribute to it. So I agree it would probably matter a little and presumably you could construct some study on that. Like, I don't know if you look at what Red Sox games and Yankees games at Tampa Bay or something, although hasn't Tampa Bay, I think at least in many years, has had possibly an above average home field advantage, which people have speculated is about the dome. But I don't know. You could find some subset of games where you would expect the crowds to be stacked in favor of the road team, and you could see whether there's actually anything there. We have not done that. That is beyond the scope of what we can do live on a podcast. And so (laughs) I will agree it's probably something, but not that much of a thing. Okay, so let's, just for the hell of it, let's try something. The Cubs became really good in the year 2015. That's when they made it pretty deep into the playoffs. And then, they, of course, they won the World Series the next year. So let's just assume that Cubs fans started coming out in droves in 2015. This is an assumption on my part. I don't know if it's true, but that's what we're going with. So we've got basically four years since then, and I looked at four years before then. So from 2011 to 2014, the Cubs had the fifth worst winning percentage at home. And then on the road, they were third worst. So they had a a home minus road winning percentage difference, I guess, of, what is this, 83 points. 83 points, home versus road. And I think that's uh, probably fairly standard. So starting in 2015, the Cubs have the second best home winning percentage in baseball behind only the Dodgers. They're at 637. And they have the best road winning percentage out of anyone in baseball at 563. That comes out to a uh, 
a home minus road difference of 74 points. So what was the difference the first time? It was like 83, I think. 83. Yeah. So even if you take these numbers at face value, don't have any adjustments or error bars, you're looking at a really minor effect. But hey, at least there's something I can tell you that (laughs) right now, over the past four years, no team has won more games on the road than the Cubs. So that's something, I guess. It, Uh It doesn't prove that there's no effect. (laughs) <laughs> or a negative effect, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. All right. This is a question from David Kim, Patreon supporter, which you have already sort of answered via email to me. But he says a quality start is six innings pitched and three earned runs. And David says that his wife finds this definition odd because that translates to an ERA of 4.5, which doesn't really sound like a quality start. She asks, how much war would a starting pitcher be worth who threw a quality start every outing? Feel free to answer in either Baseball Reference or Fangraph's war. So, like I said, I answered this, and I can do this in a few sentences, at least as of when I sent this five days ago. 19 starters this year have allowed between 4.25 and 4.75 runs per nine innings. That averages out to 4.5, which is the quality start threshold. The average collective baseball reference war per 180 innings is about 2.3. That assumes 30 starts of six innings each. So you're looking at about 2 to 2.5 wins above replacement for these pitchers based on that analysis, which I will not do anything more thorough than that. Yeah. So based on that, do you think quality is a fair adjective to attach to that? I mean, I don't know how accurate this rule of thumb is, but there is a rule of thumb that average is like two wins above replacement so if average is two and we're saying that someone who throws a quality start every time would be two to 2.5 basically you would be an average or just a tiny bit better than average major league starting pitcher if you did that does that make you quality i guess that's that's quality right i mean there's value to that i don't know i feel like if you were going to have a separate statistic that is used to point out something that is particularly good that should not be used for something that is better than average by the slightest possible (laughs) amount, because then Uh to make this over simplistic, he would have 50% of all starts being quality starts, which feels like that's just a waste of a stat. So mm-hmm. I think that it's uh, it's not quality, but then if you look at it on the other hand, if you're an average starter in the major leagues, then you have a lot of quality because, right. God, God, you're talented at baseball, and you yeah. should be in a museum, but not a museum <laughs> in Brazil. <laughs> yeah, so there's, uh, right, so if you want to interpret it very generously, you could make it make sense, but that is probably not what most people think when they hear quality start they probably think oh that was a good start that was an above average start and that is not the case so it's a pretty silly stat yeah okay step last Jacob DeGrom on ah. September 3rd, Labor Day. It's a game the Mets beat the Dodgers 4-2, to and Jacob DeGrom was terrific. He went six innings. He allowed two hits, one run, six strikeouts, 
The run was on a homer. He threw 75 strikes out of 109 pitches. Jacob DeGrom, brilliant start against a dangerous Dodgers lineup. No decision. Jacob DeGrom, again, did not get a win for a start, which he was fantastic. Jacob DeGrom this season has a 1.68 ERA. The second best ERA for any qualified pitcher is Chris Sale at 1.97. Jacob DeGrom has a 1.91 ERA in starts he didn't win. Yes. So that's fun. These things are so silly and stupid because, again, it all comes down to pitcher wins and losses and no decisions. And we don't actually care about this stuff, but at least it makes for some fun queries. So mm-hmm. Jacob deGrom, has, he's got an 8-8 eight and eight record this year. He's also got 12 no decisions in wins. Eight wins. He has a 0.97 ERA in losses. He has a 2.73 ERA in no decisions. He has a 1.41 ERA. So I was curious, going through baseball history, using baseball reference, this took me forever to track down because it's just a goddamn nuisance. But anyway, I finally got what I was hoping to get, sort of. So I looked at the past 100 years of baseball history. I looked at the past 100 years, and I looked at all pitchers, all starting pitchers, who had at least 20 starts that they did not get the win. So 20 losses or no decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that gave me a sample of, well, I mean, I don't even know, thousands, like 2,500 roughly pitchers. And I, uh, I looked from 1918 to 2018, just a nice even. I guess that's 101 years. Don't math check my stat blasts. <laughs> and I, uh, I took all those guys and I sorted them by ERA. Now, if you want to look at the, uh, at the top of the list, I don't know why you would, but we've got 1930 Claude Willoughby. <laughs> he had uh, 20 starts. He had, a, I guess this would be 16 losses and four no decisions. He had an ERA of 11.5. This is not a fun fact that's about Claude Willoughby, nor is it about 2004 Ryan Vogelsong, who had 20 such starts and an ERA of 9.1. Jacob deGrom, this year, has a 1.97 ERA, I guess, in these 20 starts. I calculated that differently. Just don't worry about it. Anyway, Jacob deGrom, this whole sample of roughly 2,500 pitcher seasons, Jacob deGrom's ERA of 1.97 is indeed the lowest in the sample. And not only is it the lowest, but it's the lowest by like more than half of a run versus 1968 Sam McDowell, who had 22 starts where he did not win and he had an ERA of 2.48. It was 0 into 14 in those starts. In third place, which I realized I didn't, Try to filter this out. Third place is this year's Ryan Stanek, who really doesn't count because mm-hmm. he's just constantly been opening. Anyway, he has a 2.67 ERA and non-wins, but he's got 23 starts, and he's 0-2 in those starts because he's going like an inning at a time. Yeah. 2014 Cole Hamels shows up here, a 3.04 ERA in starts. He didn't win, but in any case, the most important point, the takeaway here, Jacob deGrom, unless something really goes wrong, or I don't know what would have to happen in September, but unless that balloons... He's doing something that is indeed mathematically unprecedented. Pity poor Jacob deGrom and how the entire NL Cy Young argument is going to be about wins, even though that is stupid and ridiculous and we don't have to be doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no one knows the making of for that stat blast. I will just say <laughs> the the research <laughs> process for that stat blast was probably the longest of the Sullivan era. You really suffered for that stat blast. It's definitely the stat blast that I hate the most. <laughs> well, I looked something up that pertains to that earlier today because I was going to talk about it on the Ringer MLB show. All season long, we've been talking about DeGrom and whether he might finish the season with more wins above replacement than wins, and he is still <laughs> on track to do that. He has 8.6 war now and 8 wins, and we've been saying that if he does it, which I didn't believe he would when we first started talking about it, but now I kind of think he will, 
he will join a club that now includes one member, Eddie Smith, poor Eddie Smith of the 1937 Philadelphia Athletics at the time. And I did a little more research on Eddie Smith. So he, for his full career, he pitched 10 years in the big leagues. He finished with a 108 ERA plus, so 8% better than average. He was a good pitcher. He was a starting pitcher for most of that time. And yet he finished his career 73 and 113. That is a 392 winning percentage, despite being an above average pitcher. And the reason why he did that is because he basically never pitched for a team that could hit at all. He pitched for mostly bad teams. Even the competent teams couldn't hit until his very last season. He spent a fraction of his final season with the Red Sox and they could hit. But other than that, other than those eight games and three starts, he never pitched for a team with an OPS plus above 90. So none of them could hit. And that's why he got no run support. I play index to make sure, but I looked up all pitchers with at least 1,500 career innings pitched and an ERA plus of at least 108, which is Eddie Smith's, and his career winning percentage of 392 is the lowest by a lot. You have to go up to 436 to find the next guy, Ken Raffensberger. So Eddie Smith was extremely unlucky. He started that 1937 season 0-10, he also started the 1942 season 0 and 10, and somehow he made the All Star team in that year anyway, which was pretty open minded of whoever was putting him on the All Star team that year because he did not have the win loss record that usually goes along with an All Star season. And uh, at the end of that 1942 season, when he finished with a league leading 20 losses despite having been an All Star. He said, very philosophically, things ain't never as bad as they could be. So that's a good attitude to to take if you're Eddie Smith or if you are Jacob deGrom. Things ain't never (laughs) as bad. It's a double negative. So Hmm. technically, he means that they are, I guess, always as bad as they could be. But (laughs) I assume that's not what he actually meant. So, yeah. All right. I had a sort of stat blast e question. So this is from Darren. He says, I've been in a debate for most of this year with a friend about the current state of baseball. I have been saying that pitchers are throwing harder. That is why batters are striking out more. In fact, I think the increased velocity is at the root of the increase in three true outcomes. I showed him a graph of average fastball velocity increasing over the last eight years. He says a one-mile-per-hour increase would not have that great an effect on the league as a whole. He then asked if there was a way to find out if three true outcomes are more prevalent as fastball speeds increase. I assume the answer is yes, but I have no idea how to go about proving it to him. So I thought of you guys. So first thing I will say is that Mike Fast, who is now with the Astros, he did a study back in 2010 for the Hardball Times that was then followed up on at Fangrass by Jeff Zimmerman in 2014. And they found that one mile per hour can make a major difference for an individual pitcher. So if an individual starter loses a mile per hour in velocity, typically he will add a quarter of a run in earned run average. If a reliever loses a mile per hour, he will add half a run of ERA generally because relievers tend to throw more fastballs. They're more dependent on fastball velocity. So if they lose some, it hurts them more. So that's for an individual pitcher. But 
there's a significant effect there. If you gain velocity, you are going to be better. And if you lose velocity, you're going to be worse for the most part. And usually that will show up in strikeout rates and other three true outcomes components. So as a very simplistic answer to this question, another way that I went about doing this was I just sorted all of the starting pitchers this year who have thrown at least 100 innings. I sorted them by fastball velocity, whether it was four-seamer or sinker, whatever their fastball was. And I just took the top half or the top 60 of them and the bottom half or the bottom 61 of them. And I just calculated the three true outcomes rate for the hard-throwing half and the less hard-throwing half. So the hard-throwing half, the above-average velocity starters, they have an average three true outcomes percentage. That is, again, the percentage of plate appearances that end in a strikeout walk or home run. Theirs was 34.6%. So again, that's the above average velocity guys, 34.6. The below average velocity guys, 31.3. So about a three percentage point difference in three true outcomes, just looking at starters who throw hard or throw soft. And that, I think, tells you something. And even that is kind of underrepresenting it because if you are in that low velocity group, you probably compensate in some other way. You have good deception or good command. There's some reason why you're getting by without great velocity. So if you took the typical pitcher and just subtracted velocity, they would get worse. But basically, yeah, hard throwers have higher strikeout rates and higher three true outcomes percentages. And so I guess you win the debate to a certain extent there. And that's not the only thing that is at the cause of this, though. So your friend technically can claim that there is more at the root of this than just that one thing. Winning debates on technicalities. What could possibly, <laughs> what a satisfying response for all parties involved, knowing that <laughs> one of you is right, but the other one of you is also technically right. So yes. what we've learned is that maybe, maybe actually you and I are not the people to go to with questions. Cause I don't know if we're answering these in a satisfying way, but I guess questions keep rolling in. So people are getting some, <laughs> something out of this. Yeah, I think I think that answers it. I mean, it's obviously not just the velocity. It's also hitters changing their approach. And, you know, sometimes it's the size of the strike zone or it's the type of players that teams go after. And it's the bullpen usage. I mean, that has an effect on the league-wide velocity, obviously, if more guys are coming in and just throwing an inning at a time or not going deep into games, then they can really air it out. But that's part of the velocity. But there's other stuff and throwing breaking balls or whatever, maybe having something to do with this in addition to throwing really hard. Maybe it's throwing out of the zone and getting guys to chase. So there's a bunch of stuff at work here. Yeah, right. Now, then whenever you look at these things, you always have to worry about the selection bias of any sort of soft throwing guy who gets to the major leagues. Probably got there because he's really, really good at missing bats or doing something else anyway. But I don't need to talk about that because you already did. So you nailed it, Ben. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, by the way, this is the 10th consecutive season in which the average velocity in Major League Baseball has increased. Basically, since we have good data, just going back to the beginning of the PitchFX slash StatCast era, we've seen an increase according to PitchInfo. That's the data behind Brooks Baseball and also parts of Fangraphs. It has been an uptick every single year. It's just a tenth of a mile per hour this year, but it is extending the streak. 
Right. And where are uh, where are rookies this year? I guess that's something that I could check out pretty quickly here. Yeah, right. Someone asked us that, I think, recently, just whether it's more about new young hard throwers coming into the league or whether it's about older guys also gaining velocity or, I guess, whether it's the third thing, which is just changes in pitcher usage. Right. But uh, if you look at rookies right now, the average rookie, at least according to Fangraphs, is throwing a four-seam fastball of 93.8 miles per hour. But actually, that is more or less unchanged since 2013. It's hung out right there. Sinkers, mm-hmm. I guess, are a little bit higher, but that seems like it's negligible. Splitters mm-hmm. don't care. Cutters don't really care. Sliders, roughly the same. Curveballs, roughly the same. So could be that we are we're seeing pitchers get to the major leagues throwing about as hard as as they're going to maybe we've reached some sort of at least local plateau but we are having softer throwers just not showing up or maybe they're just ending up eliminated at the upper end so overall velocity is continuing to increase but the young pitchers who are showing up are not necessarily throwing harder than they have over the past five years so Mm -hmm. and i'll also add if anyone was wondering that the hard throwing half of the starters They have much higher strikeout rates, slightly higher walk rates, and lower home run rates, which is not surprising. So the soft tossers give up more home runs, and they do not strike out as many guys, and they actually walk fewer uh, by a a teeny bit. So that's how it breaks down. Mm -hmm. All right. I will also – oh, by the way, congratulations as well to – Dan Hirsch, he was not the source of any of this week's <laughs> stat blasts, but he usually is, and he is, of course, the proprietor of the Baseball Gauge and will continue to be, but he has also been hired to work at Baseball Reference, which is great. He is replacing Hans Van Sluten, who was a regular source for research for us in the past, so it is a continuity there, so congratulations, Dan. That's right. One, Just one shop for all possible needs now. Dan Hirsch mm-hmm. is actually going to be getting more email from ben now (laughs) possibly he has even more data at his disposal now so but he knew that when he took the job (laughs) sorry dan all right we've just got a couple more here all right so logan says in the nba i often hear the argument that teams are inevitably at a disadvantage in the second game of a back-to-back Since the team played the previous day, they are assumed to be tired and sore going into the second game and are expected to play worse. Since MLB teams sometimes go 10 to 15 days without a day off, I'm curious if there is a similar effect in baseball. For example, if a team has to make up postponed games later in the year and they play 20 games in 20 days, does their winning percentage drop off by the end of that run? If so, by how much? I wrote a really bad post at Purple Row a while back. His words, not mine, asking the same question. When I attempted to research this, I went through 10 years of Rockies game results by hand. That sounds awful. The problem was that when you look at longer streaks, the sample size obviously gets much smaller. Ultimately, I had to conclude shrug emoji. So he asks us this question, and we talked about this earlier in the year a little bit in the context of the Yankees having a bunch of rainouts and so having to make up those games later in the year while the Red Sox would be off, and we wondered about whether that might be a a bit of an edge for the Red Sox. And I don't know of any really good studies on the team level about how much the fatigue effect actually impairs team performance, but... I do know of one good study that was done by Mitchell Lichtman, MGL, former podcast guest, and this was on the individual player or hitter level. So 
This was back in 2013 at his blog. I will link to the post. And the post was mostly about the DH penalty and the pinch hit penalty. But while he was at it, he looked for a fatigue penalty. And he found a few. So here's what he found. In a day game following a night game, batters hit 6.2 points of WOBA, weighted on base average, worse than in day games after day games or day games after not playing at all the previous day. So that is similar to the basketball back-to-back example. Batters hit a little worse in day games following night games. Not that surprising, but backs up what we would think. Then he also looked at batters in the second game of a doubleheader, and they lose 8.1 points of WOBA compared to all other games, so slightly larger penalty. Then he found that the penalty for playing at least eight days in a row is four points of WOBA, and that's a little smaller, but it's something. And he looked at shorter streaks of games played, and as one would expect, he found slightly smaller penalties, so... It does seem to check out, as our questioner mentioned, the samples get pretty small, but Mitchell concludes that there is probably about a four-point penalty for batters who have played eight games in a row, or roughly a homestand, as Jack Ryan would say. So that doesn't tell us the team effect, but presumably, if there is an individual hitter effect, teams are made up of individual hitters, and so... You would think that it would be a compounding effect, right? Like if if one guy is four points of Woba worse, then all the other guys are four points of Woba worse. And maybe it sort of stacks. Maybe the whole lineup is just four points of Woba worse. I don't know. But it seems like there would be a penalty there. And I don't know how it affects pitchers, but you'd think there might be some hit to the bullpen at least. I don't know. Yeah, I think it only makes sense. It's intuitive to think that if someone has been, if a team has been playing for 14, 15 days in a row, that you are going to have a team that's just, it's always hard to know what to ascribe a worse performance to because a worse performance can just come down to a ball that found the grass that might not ordinarily find the grass or or vice versa. But you just figure it, it probably comes down to a little bit of maybe lapsed focus. Maybe you're not on, quote unquote, on for every single pitch. Or, or maybe you were just feeling some aches and pains, you know, like if you go to the gym three days in a row and you try to get in there on the fourth to do whatever lifting you do and you might just not be at your your peak capability. So it makes all the sense in the world that these things would compound. Now, it would be interesting to look at how teams have done when one team is like really exhausted when one team recently had a day off. I don't even yeah. know how you, you would begin to search for the... Hey, Dan Hirsch, if you're <laughs> available for a live podcast query, this should be a, a fun... Because if you had a, a big enough sample, you wouldn't even necessarily need to worry about how good each team is. You would just assume that things were balanced out over the course of like 40 or 50 years, assuming mm-hmm. that you have average teams on both sides. So it would be interesting to look at it like a team that has played at least, I don't know, eight or 10 days in a row against a team that just recently had a day off. And it would be interesting to see what the the winning percentages come out to, because I am going to guess it would not be 50-50. Yeah, right. All right. And then Corey, another Patreon supporter, he says, there's often discussion early in the season about how much to trust a team's early results when they differ from the projections. We've certainly talked about that many a time. What about for individual players? When a player is bucking the projections, are you faster or slower to revise your opinion of that player's true talent than you would be for a team? If there's a difference, what explains it? In other words, if you were the Yankees, how confident would you be in Greg Bird? Well, I I think it's a lot easier 
So obviously a team is just made up of a group of players and players will under or overperform their projections. And I think you and I both will look for reasons to believe that a, some deviation is, is real because we can spot things. Now, when you look at the, the team level, you have a team that's like just racking up wins in one ring games or whatever, then we know that that's mostly noise. But at, uh, at the individual level, I think that you can spot differences pretty quickly, whether that's velocity is down or someone's strikeout rate is dramatically improved. So uh, there's there's just a lot of noise that happens at the team level that when you are looking at a player individually, you can isolate the effects pretty pretty easily, I think, to find reasons to believe in it or or not to. But as far as Greg Bird is concerned, I, I don't know. Do you have a particular insight on Greg Bird? Because his, his profile in terms of what he is or what he should be, hasn't changed very much, but he's he's been through so much physically that I don't even know if he's supposed to be considered the same hitter that he was a few years ago when he was just newly injury-prone. Yeah, I haven't really looked at the underlying numbers this season when he's even been on the field. I was pretty bullish on him coming into the year, but that has not been borne out by the results or his health. So, yeah, I, I will say... I mean, speaking of MGL, he has done studies on what happens when a player is diverging from his projections dramatically in either direction, and he's found time after time that, at least as a group, you should always bet on the projections, that the guys who are overperforming will just about nail their rest-of-season projections from that point forward, and same for the guys who are underperforming. So, I don't know. I mean, it's definitely easier to talk yourself into buying a hitter who's overperforming or underperforming just because you can really drill down on an individual player's stats in a way that you can't so much for a team. But I don't know whether that means you would actually be right more often. <laughs> so Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and it maybe it, MGL's point shouldn't be surprising because if projections were wrong about those players all the time, then they would be very bad projections. Projections yeah. are supposed to nail these things in mass. And now I can tell you about Greg right. Bird. 2015, 2017, and 2018, his exit velocities, his average exit velocity has gone from 93 to 89.7 to 86.8. That's bad. Mm, that's so that good. just, yeah. the, so his, uh, his expected numbers are also falling off of a cliff. Now, of course, there's a question of whether or not his peak exit velocity has changed and, uh, and whatnot. This is not a Greg Bird analysis podcast, so we're not going to go into that right now. <laughs> but there is at least reason to believe that Greg Bird has gotten considerably worse for one reason or another. All right, let's end this by going full circle. We talked about that Austin Davis consulting his cheat sheet from his back pocket. This is sort of related to that. Chris says, do you guys ever foresee a day in which baseball follows football with headsets to communicate for coaches and players? Why does a catcher need to show signals for a pitcher when some algorithm or software could call the perfect pitch and a coach could communicate this to the catcher or pitcher or even just the coach part and not the algorithm part? Why does a team need to accuse the other team of stealing signals when a coach with a headset could just say double steal, hit and run, etc.? So why don't we cut out the middlemen or cut out the players entirely and just have coaches tell the players what to do, basically, since in a lot of cases they are doing that to a greater extent anyway? Isn't this basically what we talked about when the mound visit rule was being proposed? Like, why do we need to have yeah. these things anyway? Why not? Why don't we just streamline the process? I think this is, in a weird way, I think this might actually be further away than an automated strike zone. Because mm -hmm. I think that with the automated strike zone, you want everyone to be playing, in theory at least, you want everyone to be playing 
by the same rules. You want the strike zone to be the same for every single team and every single pitcher, every single batter, etc. And for for like game calling and sign sealing, I think that there's enough of some sort of like a skill effect or just baseball know-how that you don't want to that players at least or people might be resistant to having leave the game now i know that if you have the automated yeah. strikes and that kind of defeats framing which is its own sort of technique but if you certainly if you had some sort of algorithm that's just basically some computer tells the pitcher in an automated voice like curveball and then he <laughs> throws it and then the catcher hears it too then i don't know that that feels it feels a lot more distant, maybe only because there hasn't been a real conversation about it for very long, unlike the automated strike zone, which has existed as a conversation for like 10 or 15 years. But mm-hmm. I do think that there should probably be some sort of like dugout to catcher headset. I don't know. But in terms of getting it all automated and, and technological, it, it feels like it's it's quite far away, even though that also means it's inevitable. Yeah, I think that's happened at the college level in at least some places. I'm pretty sure I've talked to Michael Bauman about that. And I remember talking to Sam on an episode of this podcast about the thing that you brought up earlier, teams using like laser rangefinders to say that outfielders should stand in a certain spot and then marking that spot with mm-hmm. something. There was a bit of a, a brouhaha about that a couple of years ago because the Mets were objecting to the Dodgers doing that, I think. Or was it the other way around? I think it was the first way around. And we talked about that at the time. And I remember not being totally sure how I felt about that because on the one hand, I have no problem with teams optimizing their positioning and looking at the data and that's just smart and I get it. On the other hand, I kind of didn't like the idea that there would be a marker on the field that would just say stand here. And I don't know why because I guess it's just like it's removing something that is a skill, whether it's the hitter's ability to remember the scouting report and where he's supposed to stand or the coaching staff's ability to position the player in the middle of the game. Like to some extent, that is a test of the players and coaches ability to execute that strategy. And if you just take that away, then it's removing the need to do that. Now, I don't know. Does that make the game any more or less entertaining? Not particularly. So maybe it doesn't really matter. But something about that just didn't sit well with me. I assume that's happening all over the place. And really, what's the difference if you just have a marker on the field or if you have the outfielder with a card in his pocket that tells him where to stand? There is no real difference. But somehow, like, taking away the player decision-making aspect of that just rubbed me the wrong way. Like, I, I, I didn't like losing, I guess, the need to actually do the thing that you're supposed to do. Right. I mean, when you were reducing the agency of the player on the field, and it just feels like we are getting more and more toward a baseball game played by robots, even though we're already having players who are positioned according to these algorithms and equations and spray charts that are just in the dugout. The, the markers mm-hmm. are basically already there. They're being communicated to the players, just not the instant of necessarily you know if you have a player who's in the outfield you'll have coaches like waving them over so they'll kind of go in the general direction they just might be off by like a few feet and this would be a a interesting conversation to have at a a greater length over just how automated 
the game should be because you would reach a level where you feel like you've sort of i guess we're going to use the expression human element in this podcast you can't <laughs> you can't beat around it you might as well just dive into it the human element mm-hmm. we all cherish it i this is one of the reasons i actually do go back and forth and whether i even want an automated strike zone because i like having pitch framing as sort of an yeah. effect to say nothing of all the controversies and all the conversation you get just talking about umpires now i think the game would Whatever, different conversation. But mm-hmm. I agree with you that there's some sort of instinctive response that thinks, Ugh, I, don't, I don't really like this, but it's worth examining closer because I don't know how, uh, I don't know how sticky that instinctive feeling is upon closer examination. Because maybe this is just one of those things you have to talk your way out of. Yeah. All right, we have talked our way out of this episode. We will end here. But for good measure, I will add one more late-breaking question. This is from listener Mike in response to the Rays game on Tuesday. The Rays shut out the Blue Jays 4 to nothing, and Mike notes that they did it by utilizing seven pitchers in a nine-inning game. He continues, is that some sort of record for most pitchers used in a nine-inning shutout? I see nothing in the AP News recap, but it struck me as a lot of pitchers for a shutout regulation-length game. The big record-breaking news was opener Ryan Stanek being the first rookie since 1943 to start consecutive games, but the number of pitchers in a shutout caught my eye. Well, Mike, seven pitchers used in a nine-inning shutout actually puts this game in a 30-way tie for second place. Most pitchers ever used in a nine-inning shutout, eight. And that has happened four times, most recently on August 30th, 2014, when the Angels did it against Oakland. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already done so. Philip Baker, Daniel Zimmerman, Brandon Castro, Katie Kelly, and Matthew Yo. Thanks to all of you. And replenish our mailbag by emailing us at podcast at fangraphs.com or sending us messages via the Patreon messaging system. If you are a supporter, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and many other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we will be back to talk to you very soon. Off